Well, Merry Christmas. <laughs> we, we are in this season, aren't we? It's great to see you. Uh, man, Dre's announcements were so long. I think we're just going to like close in prayer and take an offering. Um, but they were fascinating. And they're fascinating. The one th- I learned a couple things. Like, number one, never take Dre out to Starbucks. Like, if you have to pay two, do- two drinks for $25, something is wrong. Like that, right? <laughs> So I'm not, I'm not going out. And the second thing is, I love this whole ticket idea because if it works, I'm thinking we could start using it at a weekend service and get people here on time. You know what I'm saying? It's like, like hold your seat until. Uh, so just saying. Uh, the other thing is, um, did any of you have a hard time getting in the parking lot today? Did, y- yes, we did. Yeah, okay. That's because the service went so long. I'm just so glad to be here with you because now there are no limits. I can go to 11, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. <laughs> Um, this is awesome. So glad. So lock the doors, guys, uh, because uh, you need tickets to get out today. All right. We're going to go into our time of teaching. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors. And just so glad that you're here. If you're brand new, uh, there's a green and white message note sheet. You'll definitely want to check that out um, because we're going to be using it today. So you guys ready to go? I'm ready to jump in. You ready to go? Okay. God, we're just excited to be here at the start of this amazing season where you broke into time and space and to rescue us. And today, as we talk about that story, as we talk about uh, the implications of that story. Talk about how we enter into relationship with you to become part of that story. I pray that you would speak in a really powerful way. Give me strength, energy, with my voice. I pray more importantly as a church, we'd gather around your word, really listen to what your spirit is saying to us, and we would listen and respond and follow. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're continuing uh, a series that we've been in the last few weeks. It's called Sent. Uh, subtitle is Through the Storm. Now, for those of you who are brand new, this is actually the fifth in a much longer series. It's kind of fifth and final series in a much longer series called Sent, which is a study of the New Testament book of Acts, which kind of documents, describes, uh, details the early movement of Jesus from uh, the resurrection of Jesus to kind of uh, as, a, as the movement spreads across the Roman Empire the next 30 years. So in this fifth and final series, we watch, the series we're watching is one of the key characters, a man named the Apostle Paul. Uh, has just been arrested. He's been arrested in Jerusalem on false charges. He's been transferred under military escort to the, uh, the Roman capital, the province, which is 65 miles away on the seacoast at uh, Caesarea. And uh, we watched, the last time I was with you, we watched as he went uh, under a major trial. And though the Roman governor knew he was innocent, uh, he decided to keep Paul in prison where he's been stuck for the last two years really for political and personal reasons. And so now a new governor has come into Caesarea. The old governor got kicked out because the Jewish leaders didn't like him. And so uh, the new governor has come in. He's going to reopen that case. And so we're going to see what happens today. So today we're actually covering two chapters. I don't know if this has ever happened in the history of Rocky Peak. It may never happen again. Um, but we'll see what, how you feel at 3 o'clock. So anyway, um, if you have your Bibles, you got your apps, let's go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 25. And we're going to uh, start there and, uh, at verse 1. On your note sheet, there's a section called The Trial, Paul's Appeal. So here we go. So three days after arriving in the province, this uh, new governor, his name is Festus, Portius Festus, he went up from the capital, from Caesarea on the seacoast, he went up to Jerusalem, number 65 miles away. And so he meets there with the chief priests and the Jewish leaders, and they appear before him, and they presented the charges against Paul. So a couple of things I want you to notice. Let's set this up. Uh, Festus comes into the Rome, this new promise. He does not know much about Judaism. So he's really, as we'll see, he's really sort of at a loss how to deal with the situation. 
Um, what he does know is that this is one of the most difficult provinces in the Roman Empire to govern. It's, uh, the Jews are, are very uh, stubborn people. They uh, are very loyal to their ancestral and their, their laws. Uh, they have tremendous resentment against the Roman Gentile overlords. And so uh, there's often rebellions and, and different kinds of violence. break. It's a very difficult province to keep under control. In fact, the previous governor, Felix, uh, he had just been called back, recalled to Rome because the Jewish uh, leaders had complained about his brutal leadership. And so it's a very difficult uh, place to govern. And so he comes in, doesn't know much about these people. He decides to make the trip to Jerusalem, kind of to, uh, to, on a peace mission, really, to start things off on good footing. But what's interesting is when he gets there, of all the issues they could bring up, one of the top issues is Paul, who's in prison back at Caesarea, which shows uh, it's been two years since he's been there. So it shows that this is still a hot issue for them. They see him as a tremendous threat. So they bring up this issue. So they bring it up, and in verse 3, they request Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred back to Jerusalem uh, and because they're preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Now, if you're here a few weeks ago when Dre was teaching, uh, you may remember this, that this is how the story started. He was arrested in Jerusalem, then transferred to Caesarea, and they were planning to assassinate him on the way but the Roman commander was made aware of that plot. It aborted the plot, and so that didn't happen. But now they're kind of going back to that plan. Let's get him back here and attack him on the way. And so, um, so Festus is not so big on this just because he's, just three, he's, he's new in town. He's only been in the, in the area three days. He doesn't want to spend forever in Jerusalem. So he says, listen, verse 4, Paul is being held in Caesarea, Roman capital. I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, then we can press, they can press charges there. And so after spending about a week and a half with him, eight to ten days, he goes back down to Caesarea, and the next day he convenes a court right away, and he orders Paul be brought in. And so when Paul comes in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, they stood around him, and they bring all kinds of serious charges. We saw these last time. Remember uh, that he's a threat to Roman, to public order, and also uh, that he had desecrated the temple to very serious charges that could carry capital punishment with them. And, uh, and so they, they make their charges, but they couldn't prove them. And so then Paul is going to make his defense again. And uh, once again, Luke's just going to summarize for us. He said, Paul says, look, I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Look, I've not violated any Jewish laws. I've not desecrated the temple, nothing, anything against Rome. And so you should let me go. But Festus wants to do the Jews a favor. Remember, he's new. And so he says to Paul, hey, would you be willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? And Paul's like, oh, no. Here we go again. This guy knows I'm innocent. I've been in prison for two years, held you know, for no good reason. And it's the same thing for political reasons. He's currying favor with his, like, this is crazy. I'm never going to get out of here. In fact, if I go back there, who knows? They might try to attack me again. They were going to attack me last. I'll never get out of there alive. And so he pulls his trump card. Now, whenever I say that in the next four years, <laughs> so let me be clear, there's no political message here. Right? That's just part of my language, all right? So he pulls his trump card, and his trump card, Paul's a Roman citizen. And we've seen this throughout Acts, that, that Paul's a Roman citizen. Remember, that's very rare. We tend to think, well, if you're in the Roman Empire, you're a Roman citizen. It's not like that. To be a Roman citizen means you're a citizen of the city of Rome, not the empire. 
And so it's very rare, high honor, and if you have it, it comes with certain rights and privileges. And one of those privileges, if you're ever accused of a serious crime out in a province, you're able to appeal your case back to be heard in the jurisdiction of Rome, so you get a fair trial. So Paul says, I am not going through, he's going to put down his trump card, I want to appeal to Caesar. So anyway, so Paul says in verse 10, look, I'm standing in Caesar's court, and this is where I ought to be tried, proper jurisdiction. I've not done anything wrong to the Jews. You know that. You know, like Paul's saying, like, you know this is true. This is a political thing. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I don't refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, then no one has the right to hand me over. I appeal to Caesar. Throws down his card. So Festus confers with his counsel, and he says, well, hey, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. So this actually gets Festus out of a jam. Because he knows Paul is innocent, but he wants to stay on the right side of the Jewish leaders. So now he can just say, like, hey, I'd love to help you guys, but he, he exercises his right. My hands are tied. I can't really help. But it creates another problem for Festus. And the problem is, if you're going to syndicate a case to essentially be a Supreme Court of Rome, it's got to be a complicated case. There's got to be a reason. Why does this prisoner not think he can get justice in Caesarea? What is so complicated? And if you're the Roman governor sending him there, it makes you look like an idiot. Like, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you resolve this there? There has to be a reason, and there is no reason. And so a few days later, he's got a brainstorm. And here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a local king by the name of Agrippa and his sister, the queen, named Bernice. And they are going to visit the new Roman governor to pay their respects. Now, this is quite the couple. They are a power couple. If you're in Vons, they'd be on the cover of National Enquirer or whatever people, right? And they're very fat. We actually know a lot about them from, human hist- from uh, secular history. Um, Agrippa's full name was Herod Agrippa II. Does that name ring a bell, Herod? Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, there are Herods popping up everywhere, right? It gets confusing. If we had more time, which we don't, because I already cut it out of my notes. If we had more time, I'd break it down for you. But let's do it simple way. The very first Herod was Herod the Great. He was the Herod that built the temple in Jerusalem. He's an incredible builder. He's the, he's the one who built Masada. He's the one who built uh, Caesarea, the harbor there, the first artificial harbor, a major accomplishment. Uh, and so he, he's also the Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus. Right? We're in Christmas season right now. When Herod broke up, he's got three sons. They're all Herods, right? They have kids. This guy here, Herod Agrippa II, he is the grandson of Herod the Great. All right? Now, his sister is Bernice, but here's the rumor on the street, and this is why they're such a scandal. They're rumored to be sleeping together. So they're brother and sister, but rep is, they're really, a, they're really a couple, and you can imagine the scandal this would cause. So anyway, this is the couple that's coming to pay their respects. And so here, Festus has this bright idea, like, I don't get the Jews, I don't know what's going on around here, but these guys, I mean, they have a long history of ruling over this part of the world. They get the Jews like the back of their hunt. Herod the Great, the original Herod, he posed as king of the Jews. The reason he built the temple was to pose as the Messiah, the great king, because uh, the prophecies were the temple and the Messiah would you know, kind of come together. So, and so they, they're well equipped. In fact, it was this kid's father 
that had been the Herod that killed the apostle James back in chapter 12. They have a long history. They understand. So his thought is, hey, this is awesome. They're coming to visit. I'll tell them about the case. They can help me figure out what to do and how I can write up something that'll make sense to Rome. Okay, so that's the idea. So here's what goes on. So a few days later, verse 13, King Agrippa and Bernice, they arrive at Caesarea uh, to pay their respects to Festus. And since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. It's an interesting case. And he said, hey, there's a prisoner, there's a man here that Felix left, you know, last governor, left his prisoner. And when I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests, elders, the Jews, they all brought charges against him and asked that he would be condemned. I told them it's not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before their face their accusers had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. So when they came here with me, I didn't delay the case, but right away convened the court the very next day, and I ordered the men to be brought in. And when the accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him with any of the crimes I expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion, about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. <laughs> you kind of get the sense this guy's a little out of his depth. <laughs> By the way, quick sidebar, this is how Roman culture in general would respond to the message of Jesus. Sometimes there's some dead guy that they claim is alive. It made no sense. And so he says, I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if they'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there in charges, but when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered he be held over until I could find a ship to send him to Caesar. So Agrippa now, who's this, you know, he's like kind of knows what's going on. Agrippa is in charge. He doesn't rule over Judea and Jerusalem, but this Agrippa is in charge of appointing the high priest, which is like the prime minister of Jerusalem, of, of Israel. And so he's very informed. We'll see later. He's aware of the movement of Jesus. He's aware of all this stuff. So he's like, man, this is awesome. I would love to meet with this guy. Remember, this is a day and age before CNN. There's no Oprah. There's no Phil. Like, how do you learn things, you know? So it's like, so it's like you know, you've never seen, like, Paul interviewed on Oprah. Well, so tell me, Paul, what happened on the road to Mount? You know, so, so this is like an awesome opportunity to hear firsthand from this major leader. And so he's all over it. He said, and so uh, Festus says in, in verse 22, hey, well, tomorrow you will hear him. Now, I need you to picture this. This scene, I need you to use your best imagination. Uh, I want you to create a movie scene in your mind, all right? So here's what's going to happen. This is taking place in Caesarea, right? Beautiful buildings. Those of you who've been to Israel, you can picture this. Only 10% of Caesarea has even been excavated. But even that 10%, 6,000-seat theater where they still do uh, pop, pop concerts today, top, top artists. Uh, you can still see the Hippodrome where they would race the horses, where the governor, the Roman governor, like Festus, would sit there watching the race, looking out into the ocean, best seat in the house. Uh, Herod the Great, the big builder, had built a palace there that he was so amazing, he built it out into the ocean, this huge palace, so it would be surrounded by water on three sides with a huge swimming pool out in the patio. This is huge Roman architecture, picture marble, picture columns, um, and so the next day, this is where, most likely, this event's going to happen. Paul's going to be brought in, all the top military leaders, the top political leaders, the, the richest men in the nation, in, in Caesarea, are going to be invited in to hear this interview with Paul. This is big time. I want you to picture when, when, uh, when, Fest, I mean, when Agrippa, King Agrippa and Bernice come in, 
they're, very, they're going to be wearing white togas with purple trim. It's a sign of royalty, crowns on their head. When, uh, when Festus comes in, probably wearing scarlet toga, the sign of the Roman governor. Very august body, right? And so remember, this is not a trial. Paul has already appealed. He's going to Rome. This is just a fact-finding mission to find out what we should say, which just means Paul's going to have a lot of freedom to talk about whatever he wants to talk about, and guess what he's going to talk about? Jesus, right? And so here we go. So the next day, verse 23, Agrippa and Bernice, they come with great pomp, and they, they come in all their dress and everything. They enter the audience room with, uh, room with the high-ranking military officers, the prominent men of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, here we go. So Festus says, King Agrippa, he starts off. Remember, Festus is the, the, the highest political power here. So he says, uh, he starts with a speech. Hey, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he should not live. Serious. I found that he had done nothing deserving death. Quick sidebar, why didn't you set him free? All right. But because he has made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and especially you, King Agrippa, because you're so well informed, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write, for I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner to Rome without specifying any charges. Yes, you will look like an idiot. All right. So, so Agrippa now, so, so basically what has just happened is Festus says, hey, it's your meeting. It's your meeting. Take it away. And so Agrippa takes over, and he says, um, he says in uh, uh, verse uh, 1, so Agrippa said to Paul, hey, you have permission to speak, freedom to speak. And uh, so Paul motions with his hands. He starts off. He says, King Agrippa, now, I, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today and to make my defense against all these accusations of the Jews, and especially because you're so well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies, and therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now remember, what he's about to share is just a brief synopsis. I'm not sure what he shared there. But he says, look, can I just share my story? Would you just be patient? Let me share my story. You need to understand my story. And so he launches in. Now, for us, this is the third time in the book of Acts where Luke has shared the story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Now, what does that tell you? You're writing a document, a parchment, that is worth thousands of dollars. Space is limited. You're covering the first 30 years of the movement of Jesus. If you invest three long descriptions of a conversion, what is that telling you? This is important. It's one of the turning points of the story of God. And so, uh, so, so Paul's going to launch in. Now, here's the interesting. Every time Luke or Paul tells his story, Luke includes a few more details that make it a little bit more interesting, help us understand more about that initial encounter. But today, it's the new information we're going to be focusing on. So I'm going to run through it rapidly, but um, this new information is going to be fascinating. So here we go. So he says in verse uh, 4, so the Jewish people, they all know the way I have lived. They know my story since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country, you know, Tarsus, Cilicia, and also being brought up in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time, and they can testify, if they're willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a what? A Pharisee. I was a Pharisee. I took this stuff serious. I was a good Jew, right? 
He said, and now it's because of the hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. Now, remember, a couple weeks ago we talked about this. Paul is going to make this story, this trial, all about the hope of Israel. Remember that? And remember we talked this a couple weeks. So what is the hope of Israel? The promise of the prophets that one day God himself would break into human history through his Messiah, turn all wrongs to right, and that he would completely restore all of creation, create new heavens and new earth, and including resurrect the human race. And what Paul is claiming is that the resurrection of Jesus is the first step in that resurrection of the whole uh, cosmos. And that it's our relationship with the resurrected Messiah that will determine our place in this new world that's coming. So he wants to make this all about Jesus and the story of God and what the resurrection of Jesus means. And so he said in verse 7, this is the promise that our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. Now, King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider incredible that God raises the dead? Like, if you truly believe that God spoke creation into existence, why is it so hard to believe he would raise someone from the dead? He says, now listen, I totally get this because at one time I too was convinced that I ought to do everything that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, just like these Jews are accusing me. And that's just what I did. In fact, on the authority of these same chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In fact, many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme, in other words, curse the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I was so obsessed with persecuting him, I even hunted them down in foreign cities, known as plural, not singular, not just Damascus, many foreign cities. But on one of these journeys, I was heading to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest, in other words, their emissary, and it was about noon, King Agrippa, and I was there on the road, and all of a sudden, I saw this light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me. Now, if you're a Jew, if you're Agrippa, if you've read the prophets, you know, this is like Ezekiel. This is like Moses. Like, you know right away, this, 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 this glory that's brighter than the sun, this is the glory of God. And, and so he, as a Jew, totally gets what Paul's saying, that God is appearing to him. And he says that when this happens, he said, we, uh, we, we all fell to the ground, verse 14. I heard a voice saying to me in mother tongue, Shaul, Shaul in, in Hebrew, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now that's new. We've never heard about goats before. So this is a proverb Jesus is using, a proverb from the time. When you work with oxen, you would like move them in the direction you want with a long, sharp stick, either metal or wood, with a sharpened tip. It's called a goad. We don't use it today except in terms of like mother-in-laws. But anyway, no, it's just kidding. But, um, so, you wanna, so you would try to move, you're going to move the oxen with this sharp stick. What does the oxen do when you're sticking with a sharp They kick against it instinctively. That doesn't really work. You kick a sharp stick, you get hurt more. So what he's saying is, you're being like a stupid ox. You're trying to resist what I'm doing, and it's not going to work. And so he goes on, and he says, Paul says, well, who are you? Now, much like in Ezekiel's vision, back in Ezekiel 1, very first vision, Ezekiel sees the glory of God, and he sees this person. He doesn't know who it is. Paul sees the exact thing, and he says, who are you, Lord? 
And again, the answer that comes back is going to send shivers down his spine. It's, he's gonna, his life's going to flash before his eyes because the answer comes back that I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. If you're a Jew, the worst possible sin is to be on the wrong side of Messiah. And so you, in your mind, you're thinking like, he's about to take me out. He's like, this is it. Get your will ready, you know? But it turns out that Jesus hasn't shown up to take him out. Jesus has shown up to love him, to forgive him, and to call him into ministry. And just real quick sidebar here, not in my notes, but I just can't resist this. He said, what does this tell us about who Jesus is? It tells us it doesn't matter where you've come from or what you've done or what's your story. It tells us that when Jesus shows up in your life, he comes not to condemn, he comes to rescue. He comes to save and he has a calling on your life. And so Paul will never get over this. In fact, Galatians 2, 15 years later, Paul will write, the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He'll never get over this love of Jesus that's captured his heart. And so Jesus goes on, and he says, here's why I've called you. He says, get up and stand on your feet. Exactly, by the way, what he said to Ezekiel when he fell down. He said, uh, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen. In other words, that I'm resurrected, that I'm alive. Um, and think what he's doing today. He's standing before Festus. He's standing before Agrippa. He's testifying exactly what he's seen. Jesus had said to Paul when Paul first met, when he first met Paul on the road to Damascus, you will be my witness before kings. And here we see it happening in real time. And he said, and not only what you've seen, but what you will see of me, what I'll show you in the future. He said, I'll rescue you from your own people. In other words, this is going to be a dangerous mission. I'll rescue you from your own people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles. And here's why I'm sending you to them, to open their eyes. And now we're entering into new material we've never seen before about this opening description of what Jesus said to Paul. So he said, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so they can receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified or set apart by faith in me. He says, so King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient to the vision from heaven, just like the prophets of old. I listened, I followed. And first to all those in Damascus, and then to those in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preach that they should what? What's that next word? Repent. repent. We'll come back to that. They should repent. This is the message Jesus gave. Repent. They need to turn to God. They need to demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. In the Greek it says by their works. And they'll show their sincere he says, and that is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. Catch it. So the reason the Jews seized me and tried to kill me, it's not because I desecrated the temple. It's not because I was breaking the laws. It's because I claimed that the Messiah cares about Gentiles. And he sent me to Gentiles. And he says, but, verse 22, God has helped me. He's protected me all these years and to this very day. So I stand here and I testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, not the last, the first, first of the resurrection of all creation, that he would bring the message of light, think immortality, to his own people and to the Gentiles. And so at this point, now Festus, remember, he's turned it over to Agrippa. This is your meeting. But at this point, Festus cannot sit on his hands anymore. He's like, this is crazy talk. He's like, Paul, you are like nutso. 
I know you are bright, but all your learning, it's gone to your head. Man. You, we need to lock you up in an asylum. Remember, as a Roman, a Greco-Roman who studied the, I mean, he, he sees resurrection as crazy talk. There's never going to be a resurrection of our bodies. Who would even want that? This is crazy. And so he says to, to Festus, uh, interrupts Paul right in the middle. He says, like, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. And Paul says, look, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying, catch this, what I'm saying is both true and it's reasonable. Can I tell you something, quick sidebar? The message of Jesus from day one has been not only true, it is reasonable. We don't believe in a prophet who got revelations over 22 years out in the middle of a desert in a cave. We don't follow a message that someone got on gold tablets with special glasses put on. Like, we follow a message that was birthed in history about a resurrection that took place in time that immediately afterwards that Messiah was seen by over 500 people at one time right in the very city where it happened. All they had to do was present the body to stop the movement. As Paul will go on to say, this is public. This was public action that took place in history. Um, it wasn't done in a corner. This message I bring, it's, his, it's history. It's reality. The resurrection of the world has started. It's real. It's true, and it's reasonable. It may not be the way you thought it was, but it's true, and it's reasonable. All right, so he lays that out, and uh, he says the king, of course, Agrippa, he's familiar with these things. Like, in other words, you may not know what you're talking about, but he does. And uh, I can speak freely to him I'm, because I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. This, this is the area where he rules. He's aware because it's not done in a corner. And then he turns it on Agrippa. And this is great. You see, Agrippa has put, as they would say in Britain, Agrippa has put Paul in the dock. Paul has been on trial. Hey, let's, I'd love to hear this guy. Let's bring him in. I want to interrogate Paul. And Paul has just turned the tables. And he is now going to interrogate Agrippa. Herod the Great, the first Herod, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He was half Edomian, half Jewish. So to portray, this is a, a family that's trying to present themselves as Jewish. They know the scriptures. And so Paul is going to go after Agrippa one-on-one. He says, hey, if this is true, you've got to respond. What do you think? He says, you know the prophets. I know you believe. Where do you stand? If this is true, it changes everything. Where do you stand? Remember a couple weeks ago I said, the resurrection demands a response. And he is going after him. Now here's the thing. I don't know if you've ever happened. Maybe you did this before you came to Christ. Maybe you see when people, you're sharing Jesus with people now. When the truth starts hitting too close to home, we start coming up with excuses. We want to change the subject. What about that creation thing? Well, I can't believe this. Well, what about the Bible? It's got all, there's, oh, we're going to put up something, right? Because it's getting too close for comfort. Because we're starting to realize if this story is true and he is king, I've got to bow the knee. It's going to change my life. And we're getting a little nervous here. And so we start putting up smoke screens. And that's exactly what Agrippa does. And so in verse 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He says, I know you do. And Agrippa says, uh, wait a second. 
do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Let's change the subject. And Paul says, well, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, catch this, except for these chains. I want you to miss this. What Paul says is like, I, I don't care if you're big, small. I don't care if you're the top person here, most powerful, rich, wealthy. I don't care if you're a servant here. You're the lowest. All I care about is you come to know this Jesus starting this new creation, and you become like me. For the apostle Paul, there was never what I call two-tier Christianity. One Christianity for the leaders, for the apostles, for the teachers and pastors, and one for everyone else. For him, if Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of all of us. And there is one standard and there's one calling. He died for us, we live for him. We are all in. And Paul says, I, I don't care if it takes a short time or a long time, but all I care about, everyone here, biggest to smallest, you would all become like I am except for these chains. At this point, Agrippa's getting nervous. He's like, you know, I think I need to go to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> And so, and like, Festus is like, yeah, me too. It's been a long talk. And, you know, Bernice is like, well, I always go with the women, but I'll just go with you guys. So, uh, so, so in verse uh, 30, 30, the king rose, and I, I need to leave, and with the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. And after they leave the room, they began saying to one another, hey, this man, he's not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Of course, Festus knew that before this happened. And Agrippa said to Festus, hey, this man could have been set free if he not appealed to Caesar. Of course, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, none of this would have been happening. Right? And so today we see that the die is cast and the scene is set. And next week we're going to see this incredible voyage as Paul takes off on this dangerous voyage from Caesarea all the way to Rome. And it's one of those amazing accounts in all the Bible. It's going to be great. I hope you can be here. I can't, can't wait. But for today, what I want to do is, as they send Paul back to his cell, I want to talk about this topic that Paul raises. Actually, Jesus raises this issue in his first encounter with Paul about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and the role that repentance plays in the life of a believer when we first come to Jesus and our ongoing growth. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Repentance 101. And what I want to do is I want to hit on two key insights uh, uh, kind of big picture insights, and then uh, come back with one pointed, powerful question at the end. So here we go. The, the first principle that comes out of this is so powerful is that repentance is a non-negotiable. In other words, if you want to become a follower of Jesus, you want to enter his family, you want to receive the gift of forgiveness of sins, you want to become part of his in inheritance, uh, part of his next life, that it requires a very deep repentance. There's only one way into the kingdom of God, and I want you to watch this. It is on our knees. Right? Now, uh, this is one of the things that Jesus shared with Paul very, right in this opening conversation. I want you to see this. So let's look at Acts 26. This is that part that we've not read before in these earlier encounters about what Jesus said to Paul in this initial encounter. But in verse 17, uh, Jesus says, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, and I'm sending you to them. Okay, so here's the message. Here's the mission. Here's the message. I'm sending you to them, here, number one, to open their eyes. 
And so Jesus says, hey, when before someone comes to me, spiritually they're blind. Before we come, we're spiritually, we don't really know who God is. We don't really know who we are. We don't really know who Jesus is. We don't know how the relationship works, and we don't know the path to life, life to the full. So before we come to Jesus, we're, we're like spiritually blind. So I'm sending you to open their eyes so you can see the truth about life, right? number one. Number two, he goes on. He says, and I'm sending you to turn them from darkness to light. Now, I want you to circle or underline in your Bible that word to turn. This is like classic biblical literature or word to describe repentance, okay? To repentance, repentance is often described in the Bible as a turning, all right? So we're on the wrong path, we're headed the wrong direction, and so we have to turn, do a U-turn and go the other way. Or we're headed down the road the wrong way, and we, we, we got to get off that off-ramp, go under the bridge, get back, and we, we need to turn, all right? And so, um, like, I don't know, like, most of you probably don't know me that well. You've probably not driven with me somewhere, but here's a hot tip. If we ever drive together, right, and especially a long trip, you need to pay attention to where we're going, right? <laughs> because five minutes in, we're going to be into a deep conversation, and I am going to lose track of where we're going. I remember, I saw last service, uh, Jason Kemp was here. I saw Jason, and he was an elder several years ago. I remember once we were going to an elder retreat in Big Bear. We almost ended up in Barstow before we realized, I think it was like Victorville or something like that, when it's like, where are we, right? Uh, I, one time I was coming back from Pasadena, I was on the 210, and all of a sudden I look up, I'm heading to Bakersfield. Like, I don't even know, you know, how, so here's the point, that, when you're on the wrong path, when you're on the wrong road, the only way to get to where you need to go is to turn. And so this is a metaphor the Bible often uses. And so, so Jesus, I'm sending you to turn them, catch us from darkness to light. So what's Jesus saying? Before we come to Jesus, we're living in the dark. Now, darkness in the Bible represents two things. It represents ignorance, you know, like we don't know where we're going, or it re represents evil, that which is destructive. You know, often as Christ followers, we still think of sin in a very negative way, like, like yeah, I, there's this thing I like, to, I love to sin, but I'm not supposed to do it. Uh, sin, from a biblical perspective, sin is always destructive. Sin is the opposite of what is good and right and true and beautiful. God will never ask you to stop doing something unless it's destructive for you. See? And so, so Jesus, I'm sending you to turn them. They're on the wrong path. They're heading into the dark, a path of destruction, both this life and the next. We need to turn them around. And then he goes on and he describes this path a little bit more. And he says, we're going to turn them from darkness to light, turn the lights on, and from the power of Satan to God. So he says, they may not realize it. There's a lot of wrong paths. They're all led by Satan. There's religious wrong paths. There's wild child wrong paths. There's like, hey, you know, American dream wrong paths. There's all kinds of wrong paths. He says, but what they have in common, they're all satanic. They're all being leading you to destruction the wrong way. He says, the reason I'm sending you to these people is to open their eyes to turn them around 
so that they can move from darkness into a new future to light, and they can move from the path of Satan to God so they can have a life they were designed to live. And then he goes on, if you keep going, and he talks about repentance some more. And so so Paul says in, in verse 19, Oh, well, no, keep, let me keep going in verse 18. Uh, so, to open their eyes, turn from darkness to light, for the power of Satan to God, now, catch it, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place of those who are sanctified or set apart by faith in me. Now, catch this. He says, what he says is that if, if they want to receive this gift of forgiveness and become one of my people, a place in those who are sanctified, it requires a turning. Do you see that? There is no forgiveness. There is no place of inheritance without the turning. This is where we have often got it wrong in the church of America. What we have often taught is it is possible to have salvation by believing in Jesus but not following Jesus. We have taught it's possible to have Jesus as Savior, but not have Jesus as Lord. In fact, we have even taught at times that, hey, just ask Jesus into your life, raise your hand, go forward, do whatever. No, you don't need to do anything else. You don't need to turn from your sin. That's later. Just come to him now. You'll get the gift of salvation, and you'll get the forgiveness, you'll get all this, and eternal life. And then later on, when you're moment, you can turn. But what I want you to see is that's not the way it works. There is only one Jesus. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is King. And Jesus is Lord. And if you want a relationship with Jesus, and you want him to save you, you have to come to Jesus as your Lord. You have to bow the knee. There is no other way. And so Paul goes on to talk about this some more. Keep going. So in verse 19, he says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision. In other words, I listened, I followed. And I, I, first in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then in all the Gentiles, I preached. So here's the message that I preached from Jesus. He gave me. I preached that they should what? Repent. He summarizes the whole message that they need to Repent. Come under the leadership. Stop running your own life. Stop acting as if you're the commander of your own ship. Bow the knee. Switch sides in this spiritual battle. Lay down your sword. Come under his leadership. He said that, that's, that's how Paul summarizes all that. We're going to repent. And he says, catch this, and turn to God. Do you see that? Turning and repentance. And demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. And literally in the Greek, it's by their works. So catch what Paul's saying here. He is not saying we're saved by our works. He just said we're saved by faith in Jesus, right? He just said that. What he's saying though, and catch this, is that true faith always leads to real following. And if there's not real following, it is not true faith. He says that it's not, you can't just say you believe in Jesus and say you repent. He said you need to prove that that's really true. 
And what will prove that is your life as you come under his leadership and he transforms you. Men and women, this is so important because I believe in America there are millions of people who believe they are saved and they are not. Because there was some point in time when they're 12 years old, they raised their hand at a meeting or they prayed a prayer or they went forward at a horizon crusade. But they never surrendered their life to Jesus. And as a result, there was no repentance. And catch this, there was no transformation. And so they think that their eyes have been opened and they think they're on living in light. And they think that they're on God's path, not Satan's. But the reality is, they have never bowed the knee. And the impact on the kingdom is huge because what happens in a culture out there, all these millions of Christians are now seen as representatives of Jesus. And now we understand why the world laughs at us and why Christians have done far more damage to the kingdom of God than atheists ever have or will. And so Jesus' very first encounter he says, I love these people. I died for these people. I'm sending you to set them free, to open their eyes, to turn on the lights, to lead them from the path that leads to death and Satan's path leads to peace of life. But to receive that forgiveness and that place, you have to bow the knee. Come under the leadership of your true king. You know, this, uh, this week I was reading a book by Tim Keller. Tim, you know, is a famous pastor, author, apologist, great thinker, and and Tim wrote a book recently called Hidden Christmas. He just released it for Christmas. And I was reading this, and he was talking about Mary and how traumatic it was for Mary to accept this assignment that God gave to her first Christmas. And then we're, we're at Christmas, right? So it's like, it's, it was very dramatic, or very traumatic because we, we forget this, but when the angel came and said, you're going to have a son, and she said, how's that going to happen? He goes, well, this, it's going to be a God thing. Um, that, that we say, oh, that's really cool, but we, 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 don't, we miss the implications. If you're living in small town USA and you come up pregnant and the months uh, when you get married, they don't work out, uh, and your, your, salute, your, your explanation, oh, yeah, it's a God thing? How do you think that's going to fly in small time backcountry Judaism of her day? She is going to be seen as being, number one, you either slept with your fiance, which in that culture was huge taboo before your marriage, or you slept with someone else and were unfaithful to your fiancé. Either way, you're going to wear a scarlet letter the rest of your life. You're going to be seen as a second-class citizen the rest of your life. And your son is very likely going to be seen as a bastard. This was the assignment that God gave her. And yet, what did Mary say? I am your servant. Be it to me as your will. She received. And what Tim says is this is what it means to be a Christian. It means we come under the leadership of King Jesus and we accept his calling in our life. I love the way he puts it there on your note sheet. He says, anyone who wants to become a Christian, catch that, anybody who wants to become a Christian must basically do the same thing as Mary and, of course, Abraham did before her. Becoming a Christian, it's not like signing up for a gym. It's not a living well program that will help you flourish and reach your potential. By the way, I think it is that. It's just so much more than that. Christianity is not another vendor supplying spiritual services you engage in as long as it meets your needs at a reasonable cost. 
Christian faith is not a negotiation, it is a surrender. Man, when God called you, you gave up your rights. To be a follower of Jesus by definition means you die to yourself and you rise with him. At the core of being a follower of Jesus, it is a death to ourself and our old life. It is a deep repentance. It's a turning to our true king. It's a bowing before him and being commissioned by his sword on our life for whatever purposes he has. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the way he puts it, you know, famous uh, pastor in Germany was part of the resistance movement against Hitler. But he writes in his, his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, catches only those who believe obey. And only those who obey believe. To be a follower of Jesus requires a radical repentance. It's a turning over of our life. It's a It's a surrender. It's a bowing down to his king and his lordship. And when we do that, we are granted forgiveness of all crimes against his kingdom. And we are welcomed with open arms to play an incredible role in the kingdom of God. Number two, the second principle about repentance is that repentance leads to life. And this is so important. I think often, even as followers of Jesus, we can often, if we're honest, see repentance as a negative thing. Like, repentance is that thing that I need to do, but I don't want to do. It's, uh, it's giving up that thing or starting doing that I don't want to do. And so we see it as a negative thing. But the reality is, is that, as I said before, Jesus will never ask you to start or stop something unless it's for your good. It's just the way it is. Like, repentance is not about Jesus kind of showing up and saying, hey, I'm the king, and just to throw my weight around and prove you as in charge, I just want you to do this thing. I know you hate it, and I know you can hate it, but you just need to do it because I'm in charge, right? I'm the boss of you. Like, it's not how it works. That Jesus will never ask you to repent of something that's not damaging or destructive to you or the kingdom. It's just the way he is. In fact, I love the way that Paul puts it in Romans 2. He says, do you not realize that God's kindness leads you to repentance? It's his love for you. Like anytime he reaches into your life and says, hey, your marriage, you're, you're on the wrong path. I want to open your eyes. I want to kind of turn up the lights. I, I want to show you where this path is going. It's not, you know, I know it's the way your parents did it. I know it's the way your dad was or your mom. I, I, your, your mom but it's, the, it's like it leads to death and you need to turn. I know it's going to be hard. But he never comes and says, hey, this, whole, this sex life, you know, this sex outside marriage, this is not okay. You're a follower of mine. It, He's never going to come to us and say, your finances, you know, you haven't surrendered that to me yet. I, I told you that you can't serve God in mammon, so you, you need to surrender that. How you make it, how you spend it, how you give it, how you earn it, how you invest it. Like, this needs to come under my leadership. You need to surrender. Like, Jesus will never come to us in that area of forgiveness. Or, he will never come to us and ask us to turn unless it's to lead us to life. We see this in Acts. We saw it earlier in Acts chapter 11, the story of Peter. Uh, You remember back in uh, chapter 10 and 11, uh, God calls Peter, gives him this vision, the sheep from heaven. He gives him this vision, right? And the vision, he's supposed to go to Caesarea, which is where this trial is taking place, by the way. Go to Caesarea. There's a Roman military officer there named Cornelius. I want you to share the message of Jesus. Now, at the time, this was unheard of because Jews didn't believe Gentiles could be saved. 
But he goes, and remember, right in the middle of the message, the Holy Spirit comes out, speaking languages. They worship God in languages they never learned. It's obvious the spirits come. Paul's, uh, Peter's blown away. He goes back to Jerusalem. All his Jewish buddies are upset because, hey, Gentiles can't be saved. He says, well, let me tell you what happened. He tells them a story, and they're like, all right. And so, but this is what they said. It says, when they heard this, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, so then God has, catch this, God has what? Granted, like a gift. God has granted even the Gentiles, what? Repentance. And what does repentance do? Unto life. They're like, this is crazy. We thought Gentiles were all going to go to hell. We thought Gentiles were going to get burned. We thought, and God loves Gentiles, and he's going after Gentiles, and he's giving them this gift of repentance that will lead them to life, this next life, the hope of Israel. That's crazy. Wow. See, repentance always leads to life. So the question is, there in your note sheet, you have a section called Repentance 101, one powerful question, and I want to wrap it up. I just ask you a question, but both for believers and non-believers, we'll apply it differently, but here's the question. Are there any turns you need to take? So we've seen today what repentance is. It's a turning. We've seen why we need to take it. He loves us. He died for us. He's got a path to life, but it requires often a turning uh, from our leadership to his leadership. And so the question is, as a believer or not a believer, are there any turnings you need to take? Now, I want to break this down. I want to talk to those of you here who are not yet a follower of Jesus yet. In many ways, if you're here today, chances are you're much like King Agrippa. You want to hear the Apostle Paul. You're, in, in, you're, uh, you're really taken by his message. You want to invite him in. You want to hear this message. You're interested in the message. But what you don't realize is at a certain point, the tables are going to be turned, and you came here thinking you would evaluate the message, and all of a sudden you found out the message is evaluating you. And the question is, what are you going to do? Will you be like Agrippa that makes up some excuse and runs from that? And like, well, what do you expect? Uh, one day I just make the decision? Yeah. That's really crazy. Yeah. Or will you do what Paul says, and whether it's short or long, do you make the decision to follow Jesus like me? And so if you're here today, man, you've heard the message of Jesus, right? You've heard it. He loves you. He died for you. That he wants to forgive you. He wants to give you inheritance. wants to change you from the inside out. Lead and guide you every step of the way. Not just this life, but the next life. But it requires a repentance. A turning. A surrender. And so the question is, do you want to do that today? Is God calling you to do that today? And if so, you say, yes, I want in. Which I hope you do. Because the water is warm, let me tell you. But if you want in, I'm going to give you a chance in just a couple minutes. For those of us who are followers of Jesus already, here's the thing I want, you, I want to ask you the same question. And the reason is, I want you to catch it, as followers of Jesus, that repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance, catch this, is a way of life. For followers of Jesus, repentance is not a one-time thing. We, just, we start that way and then we're done. No, repentance is a way of life. And the reason is, is because the Holy Spirit, when he comes in our life, he's always going to be opening our eyes to new truth. And he's always going to be turning up the light 
So we can see, oh, we've been in darkness. And he's always going to be showing us this path you're on, the way your parents did it, the way you've always done it. It's not the path of God. It's the path of Satan. It leads to death. And that's just reaching, that's part of his job description. This is what he does. And so as followers of Jesus, it should be routine, natural for us, constantly, that the Holy Spirit just comes to us and he's like turns up the light and we see like, oh, I'm on the wrong path. I need to get off and do a U-turn. Now, sometimes those turns are minor course corrections. Sometimes when the Holy Spirit calls you to make a turn, it's not that hard. It's like, thank you very much. for I just didn't know that. That's great. And you make the turn and it, life is better. But there are other times when it is extremely painful. There are times when it comes to you and, and the Holy Spirit's going to come to you in some area of your life. Maybe it's your sexuality. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your relationships. It's a bitterness. It's a forgiveness. It's a work ethic. It's a life calling. It's a ministry call. Whatever it is, and the Holy Spirit comes to you and he says, you know what? You're on the wrong path and you need to turn. And it feels to you, if I make this turn, if I give up that relationship, if I surrender in this area, it feels like it will tear your heart out and you will die. And can I tell you something? That it will. But what will happen is you will rise from the dead. A new person, transformed, a new life catches the person you are created to be with a new level of freedom and life and joy and power and beauty and righteousness and truth and fun and laughter and joy that you've ever had before. In fact, I can promise you the deeper the death, the greater the life. And so the question is, is the Holy Spirit calling to you today not through morbid introspection. I'm not saying, hey, think of something in your life to repent from. It, the Holy Spirit's not like that. You just say, Lord, is there anything in my life right now that's holding me back? Anything that's keeping me down? Anything you want to show me? And if he says yes, then you bow the knee and you surrender and you die so that you can rise. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come right now as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. We ask you to fill this place. And Lord, you know that we are not trying to create something artificial here. We're just creating an environment where we want to invite you to come as the Spirit, the Lord, and to speak to our hearts as your children. Is there an area of our life that you want to speak, that you've been calling, we've been resisting, or maybe it's a brand new, that you want to speak and call us to a place of turning? getting off one road, going the other direction that will lead to life. And while you're thinking about that as my brothers and sisters, and just in this moment, I just encourage you to be open to the Lord. Is there anything? Just hands open spiritually. Is there anything? And while they're praying there, I, I want to talk with those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus. And you know that we've gone through this decision and what it's about. But I'm here to tell you that if you're here and God is calling you, this is the greatest adventure of your life. And it will be scary. It'll be scary to give up control, but it will lead to life, life you're meant to live. And so if you're ready to make that decision and to ask Jesus in your life, I'm going to pray right now. And if this expresses a desire of your heart, I want you to pray along with me, your mind, your heart. If you're sincere, God will hear. And let's go into his presence together and let's walk before him so you can ask Jesus into your life. And so Lord, we come now.
in the name of Jesus. And we ask, first of all, that you would forgive us for all our rebellion and our sin, for running our own life and rebelling against what we've known many times is right and good and true. We ask you to forgive us. And Lord, we bow our knee. We ask you into our life as our Lord, our King, and our Savior. We ask you to forgive us. We ask you to remake us. Give us a place among those who are sanctified, among you, set apart for you. And you teach us how to live and to follow you, that we might experience life, life to the full in this life, and the new heavens and the new earth reign with you in the next. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you just ask Jesus into your life, the first thing I want to do is welcome you into the kingdom. You are in for the ride of your life. It will not always be easy. Sometimes it will be hard, but it's amazing. And it's what you were designed and created for. And secondly, I'd like to help with that by just giving you some tips, kind of a roadmap for your initial journey. And uh, so what I'm going to ask you to do is in a minute, we're going to be, we're going to be uh, taking our offering and worshiping. And inside your program, there's a little card called the Connect card. I ask you to fill out the front and on the back, just write me a message. Say, Michael, I asked Jesus into my life or I gave my life to Jesus. We'll know what you mean. And then I will send you this week a letter just from First Steps to following him, to get you started well. So God, we come today in the name of Jesus, the one who died for us, the one who rose for us. We come in the name of Jesus, the one who breaks into our lives to open our eyes of the blind, the one who turns our darkness into night, the one who changes our path, the one who purifies our heart, the one who wants to set the oppressed free and turn us into people that are those who come alongside to help those who are oppressed be set free. So as we worship you, as we bring you our offering, we pray that you would make this place, this church, a place for the light of Jesus and the message goes out and that many who are currently oppressed will be free. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we worship? And oh God, that's our prayer. God, there are so many out there that are impression and we want to see that darkness broken. We want to see eyes open. God, we want to see the darkness lifted. We want to see freedom come to the oppressed. And yet, Lord, we know the reality of it is that unless it comes to us first, we cannot be a conduit of your grace. We can't be a channel of your message. We can't be the means through which you speak like you spoke through Paul today. God, if our lives are not totally surrendered, If we are not on our knees before you, not once, but every day, God speak, God heal, God reveal, God direct, God restore, remake. God, we need your power. We need the power of your spirit flowing through our lives like a mighty river, cleansing, revealing, refreshing. And so God, we pray that today you hear the prayer of our heart as we turn. We ask you to come and be our true king. We repent of the times we have acted as if our life is our own. We today as a church put a stake in the ground that it is not true. We do not belong to ourselves. We've been bought with a price. And so we pray you would come with the power of your spirit to lead, to guide, to convict, and empower us to rise up and follow you afresh, that we might be channels of healing, channels of mercy and living waters in a dry and thirsty land. God, will you please open the eyes of the blind? God, we beg you that you would lift the darkness in our land. We pray that you would bring freedom to the captives. We pray that you use us to do it 
and it would start with us. And we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Merry Christmas. The King has come. And I can't wait to continue to celebrate all month the incarnation of Jesus that changes all of history. This incredible truth that there was a time and a place when the God who created time and space entered to die for our race that we might be rescued and restored. It's a message he's entrusted to us. I hope you can come every week this month, next week, incredible time as we follow Paul and his journey as he heads to Rome. Prayer over here on the right side. We'll see you next week. God bless.